One size fits all seems like a good idea for clothes until you try them on. Same goes for healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers flexible, budget friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. Learn more at uh1.com. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com/people today. You know, I've been talking about earned media value for quite some time on this podcast. My friends at Eisenberg have just raised the bar on earned media benchmarks with their social index. Social index now gives you globally earned media values across a growing list of six geographies for all your KPIs across the top seven social platforms, Facebook, Instagram, LinkedIn, Snapchat, TikTok, Twitter, and YouTube. You can now visualize these values for deeper analysis and they have a look back window over two years of historical comparisons. Social Index is updated daily. Don't get stuck with old data. Over 1,000 companies have used the Social Index to understand the ROI of their social campaigns. And if you work with a social agency, you should demand they incorporate earned media values into your reports. Get your earned media value for social content. Visit earnedmediavalues.com slash Allen. Again, that's earnedmediavalues.com slash A-L-A-N. For all of us, it's about predicting where the consumer is going and getting half of it right. One of the things we want to do is create ads that don't suck. Embracing change creates great possibility. I'm Alan Hart, and this is Marketing Today. Today on the show, I've got Kimberly Whitler. She's the Frank M. Sands Senior Associate Professor of Business Administration at the Darden School of Business, which is at University of Virginia. On the show today, we talk about her new release, which has been ranked number one in product management on Amazon. The book is Positioning for Advantage. And on the show, we also talk about much more within the book, uh, why she wrote it, what positioning is, what's the value of marketers to a business. And we also spend a little bit of time on influencers as well as purpose and how purpose may or may not be something that your brand should be focused on. So I hope you enjoy this conversation with my good friend, Kim Whitler. Kim, welcome to the show. Thank you. I'm so glad to be here. I'm excited to have you back. You, you were one of the early podcasts on my side and looking forward to talking about your latest book here in a few minutes. But before we go there, before we go there, we have to talk about one of what I think you phrased as one of your worst jobs ever, your, <laughs> your former accounting career that you had. Tell us about that. Well, I have a few jobs that are in the running for that. And it actually would not be the, the time I spent at McDonald's. But at one point, I wanted to be an accountant. And so I got this job. I worked in an accounting firm. And this is pre-computers. So they had a room. Imagine a room. It was like a library of nothing but tax code. So binders and binders of taxes. And what my job was is every day they get a stack of new code. It would come in the mail. I would go into this room, I'd open it up and it'd say, for example, binder 125 or whatever. So I'd go find the binder, I'd find the pages that had to be replaced, I would take out the old pages, throw those away, and then I would put in the new pages. Now, imagine doing this for an hour, then imagine doing it for eight hours in a row, and then manage or imagine doing this for week upon week upon week. So clearly my passion for accounting died that summer. <laughs> <laughs> Along with maybe ever wanting to see a binder again. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Wow. Oh, that's funny. Well, you successfully got away. <laughs> and now you're one of my favorite academics to talk about because you didn't start there. You know, a lot of academics start in academia, they stay there. But you, you have this unique career path from marketing practitioner to academia. Tell, tell me about that. And do you feel like that's a key element of your background like I do? 
actually, it was kind of insane because in my 40s, I, I did career number two, which was to go back and get a PhD and then pivot into academia. I would not really advise anybody to do this. It really is quite hard. There's a reason why you need to be like 27 to go and get a PhD. But here's here's actually what happened. I was in my late 20s and I had my pastor give me a book and the book was called Halftime. And the essence of this book, and I think he gave it to me because he thought I was working all the time and I didn't have appropriate balance. That would be my guess. But as I read the book, it talked about why people have midlife crises and that the first half of our lives, we tend to spend to satisfy ego and status stuff, things like money, titles, accumulation of big cars and big expensive houses. And and then what happens is we realize as we start pivoting into the second half of our life, that, that this is not what really matters and that that awareness creates this midlife crisis and that the second half of our lives is spent living to try to have impact. It's about your legacy and so forth. And so I just decided to plan my midlife crisis. I'm not sure that was the in, intent that he had when he gave me the book was to basically double down on the hours worked. But my my plan was to basically save and then to retire at 40 and to do whatever I thought would be fulfilling at that time. And as I started getting closer and closer to 40 and starting to think about what it is I might want to do, I realized I actually wanted to work forever. Where could you work forever? Where could you feel like you're having a very significant impact? And for me, you know, the logical answer was academia. I spent five years focused on my own brain. That's what I I said. I stopped managing an organization and went back to school and let my hair grow and hung out with young people who had no money. You know, our idea, I went from nice cocktail parties to everybody, you know, bringing a potluck at at an okay apartment going back to kind of living the way you did in, 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 in college, albeit with much smarter people and, you know, focusing on just my own brain and learning new, new things. And then I came out the other side. Now I'm at Darden and have an ability in this new career to focus on impacting scholarship. So research, I still get to do a lot of research, impacting young people, students and impacting practitioners. And that's one of the things I loved about Darden is that they want to impact all three not just students and scholarship, but also practitioners. And so for me, this has been my fun second career where I can really kind of focus on helping those in the upper echelons um, better understand and leverage marketing. Congrats on publishing your, your book, Positioning for Advantage, Techniques and Strategies to Grow Brand Value. Why write a book, <laughs> first of all? <laughs> and then why, why, maybe why now? <laughs> good question. I wish I thought of that question (laughs) before I did it. No, you know what? I did not actually set out to write a book. That was not the intent. What happened was Darden is known for having the world's best educational experience, something like nine or 10 years in a row, we were ranked number one for education. So one of the things that we're evaluated on is our ability to create new to the world curriculum. And so when I got to Darden, I understood this expectation. And so I started thinking about what elective did I want to teach that would be new to the world and very useful for students. So I did what marketers do. I started looking at the data on student surveys. I started talking to students. I talked to recruiters, you know, that hired our students and said, what what gaps in preparation do they have? And what I what I ended up, and then I looked at different courses that some other leading competitive schools had to try to identify where was there a gap. At the same time that I was doing this, I actually had an interesting conversation with the global president of AMA, the American Marketing Association, on the academic side. And something converged. What converged was the students, the data that I was seeing and listening to, the students wanted to have tools. They wanted to understand how to, what I call the theory doing gap, they want to understand how to do marketing. And what the AMA was saying is we need tools. And as I started looking at classes that students love, like decision sciences, they go and learn how to program or they learn how to use Tableau. If I listened to their passion for finance, they would learn an equation. And what I kept hearing was, I want to know how to do something. I want to create skill, not knowledge, not just knowledge of theory. 
And then I started looking at marketing and we taught a lot of two by twos and we had nice frameworks and we'd talk about why differentiation was good and, and, and we'd explain concepts. And so what happened was I said, I'm going to try to create a course around how you create differentiated brands, but it's, it's all going to be based on tools that you learn how to apply to address problems. And so I started I looked around, no content, and I started writing all the content. And then a couple of years later, the head of Dart and Publishing, we're very big, we publish a lot of cases in course pedagogy. And uh, he came to me and said, Kim, this would make for a terrific book. And I thought, okay. And he said, and it wouldn't be that hard. <laughs> <laughs> Famous last words. Yeah. And that, was, that was like five years ago. <laughs> <laughs> this will be simple. And so off I went and... He, he's been, Steve Momper is, is the head of Darn Publishing, and he's just been a terrific advocate and mentor, helping me understand kind of the whole publishing side of everything. And so that, that prompted me to go kind of build out this book. We took it to a few different places to see if anybody would be interested in publishing it. I had offers from the trade groups as well as uh, Columbia, and I went the academic route. And then you know, I went, we went off and we published it, but, but the purpose of this was really what I call to solve the theory doing gap that we teach in, in, in college and in graduate school theory of marketing, but there's, there's just a, not as much practical experience that helps develop skill and proficiency. And so this book really tries to solve that. In fact, the very last chapter of the book is nothing but examples of how you can practice using the tools so that you can build your own skill and proficiency. I do love how the book is laid out and the fact that you show how it's done, right? <laughs> Which sounds crazy because we talk about, I mean, even on this show, we talk about marketing and all its various flavors and constructs and such, but rarely do you actually have somebody sit you down and say, okay, you can use this framework for this, you can use this for that. Here's how you put together communication around what your marketing strategy is. And you've kind of done that with this book. The thing that I like about it is that I've actually used almost all these tools in executive ed. I, we teach a C-level program at Darden, and I, I teach the marketing curriculum in that. And I, I use the tools, you know, with C-level executives, and it really helps bring kind of learning to life. They can, they can literally leave a session, and then I'll get a note a week later saying, I use this tool in this circumstance, and boy, did it help. And for me, that's exciting. That's awesome. You start out the book, I think if I remember, it's on page nine, but you start out this with this really fundamental question that I thought I'd ask you to tell us what the answer is, is like, what do marketers uniquely contribute to firm performance? As marketers, we get that question all the time. So I feel like we could provide the answer today. Well, I start actually class when I teach the MBA program, I start with that question. Why do marketers exist? Like, what is our purpose? If you took marketing out of a firm, what would change? What metrics would you expect to go down or go up? What would happen? And I, I also teach a group of every year in July. It's one of my favorite groups. It, it's a Secretary of Defense program. And so they're all individuals right below the general level. And so it's a fellowship where they come to Darden for a couple of weeks and then they go and they'll work for nine months at the VP level or higher in a company like Alphabet or Google or defense contractors, et cetera. And so we're kind of the window into how business works. And I always start off and go, how many of you even know what marketing is? Because they're coming from the military. And so, you know, it's this fundamental question. Why do we exist? What is our job? What are we supposed to do? And, and I go through a case that really shows how marketers change the growth trajectory of a firm. And the answer at the, first, at the end of the first day is, well, our job is really strategic growth engineers. We are the ones who architect growth. And, and, the, and so the purpose, you know, that's what we do. Our ultimate purpose is to create sustainable advantage for the firm. But the way in which we do this, the how, is that we do it through positional advantage. Right. So what we're trying to do and, and you have to forgive me, but I spent a minute in the military. And when I, when I was in the military, you're taking a bunch of classes on professional military studies. And what are you studying? You're studying wars, you're studying battles, and you're trying to understand how one side somehow 
achieves a positional advantage, whether it's chess or it's war or it's, you know, tied competing with Purcell. You're trying to figure out how to get a positional advantage. In this case, when we talk about positional advantages in the minds and hearts of our consumers, we're trying to create a brand that, that means something such that you can win in the game of the mar- or the war of marketplace. And so that's our purpose is to create sustainable advantage. How do we do that is we are uniquely the growth engineers and we, you know, are, are the way that we achieve the sustainable advantages through positional advantage. It puts at the heart that it's really the, the decisions that we're making ultimately, you know, the, that are helping the organization make around how to create that positional advantage, which is the hardest part to describe what that is. That's where this book like this comes into play with the frameworks and the tools and the methods, if you will, of how to create that and articulate it. I think I need to send my mom this book so she knows what the hell I do every day. Because, <laughs> <So, laughs> you know, it's this question like you, you get from your mom, like, what do you do? And you go, well, I'm marketing. And they go, what is that? You know, like, I know the pretty pictures I see on TV and videos uh, of ads, but what what is marketing? And yeah, it's hard to put in simple simple frameworks, but I love the notion of positional advantage and, and creating that for your company. And it seems like at the core of marketing strategy or business strategy is choice, like to do or not to do something. And it seems like it's a recurring theme in your book as you pace through the chapters from the upfront positioning of a brand to then later in the marketing resource allocations and activities, you know, how are you making those trade-offs, if you will? Do you agree that like, much of your book is about these choices we need to make and around what we're going to do, what we're not going to do, how we're going to communicate, what we're not going to communicate, and ultimately, how do we deliver? Do you see it as a, a decision book? Well, I, I actually love that you saw it this way because it didn't strike me that way. But as you're saying this, I'm thinking you're probably right because I was fortunate early in my career. I think the way in which we planned our strategic plans at PNG were all about forcing choices and the the process that they went through was really rigorous to try to get us to to understand that what's on the piece of paper of what we're going to do for the next year the interaction of those items being able to defend what's on the paper what's not on the paper the things that you cut off the piece of paper like that process for me was really quite pivotal. But I'll give you, let me give you an example of, of kind of how powerful I think this is. In an early point in my career at PNG, I was at a, we had our annual kind of sales meeting and we had this really smart head of sales. He was, he had a law degree, he had an MBA, just a very smart guy. And he had this very clever strategic plan for sales about how we were going to build the business. And he got up and he presented it to the whole sales force. And I was there And I thought, this is really, I mean, just genius, clever, intricate, smart. The business went down. The next year we had a new head of sales (laughs) and I'll never forget it. He was, he was kind of an old school sales guy. All right. And he got up there and he said, as tide goes, so goes the business. Repeat after me, as tide goes, so goes the business. And he said it all day, 50 different ways. And in that moment, and then I watched as the business rebounded. The difference is that he knew what the one lever was. He, You have all these people. If you're trying to get everybody to row in the same direction and you have very complicated plan, they can't do it. They can't do it. And so I, this is one of my favorite things I do with executive groups. I go through strategic planning and what I do, this is my little trick. I, I have the tool and I have them fill out a strategic plan for their health. And so what we do is we fill out the page. So they have like three, four or five strategies. They have an objective. They have all their tactics, da, da, da. And I'm like, excellent. What's the chance that you're going to do all of this? <laughs> and by the way, where's your strategic plan for your career, for your family, for learning and growth? I mean, you might have five strategic plans. Now go put all those onto one page. So then I go through a different process and I said, if you can only do one thing on this paper, one, what is the one thing that is going to give you the greatest chance of success? 
the enemy of great are these big, complicated plans. The enemy of great is a lack of focus. And I, so I do think in this, in this book, almost everything is about how do you make the right choices? I'm actually working, I'm working on another book right now for student athletes, and it's how to monetize their, their athlete brand in an NIL name image likeness world. And it's a bit of subterfuge. The reason is, is because the whole book's about monetizing your brand. But in reality, for every 100 students who goes through and works through the workbook, 8590 should realize that they should not be spending time or energy trying to monetize their brand, right? Because they're, what are their goals? What is the role of sport in their life? Do they want to be an NBA player or do, is, is sport just a free education? How do they allocate their resources, the most precious of which is time right now, and how should they shift them, okay, shift them if they need to monetize their brand? Well, in most cases, as you shift away from sleep, studying, and, and sport, which one of those do you want to give up on, you know, to try to find time to monetize your brand? And so a lot of this, I think it's, it's interesting that you saw that kind of theme uh, throughout the book, but I think a lot of it is about making the choices that put you in the best position to win. And a big part of that is you have to go execute effectively. And so complicate, complication oftentimes is the enemy of being able to implement effectively. Kim, I want to, you mentioned athletes and one of the very specific topics that you highlight in the book, but it, I mean, it's, I don't want to make too much of it because it's in there, but it's not like a theme of the book. But you, you talk about influencers and, you know, they're all the rage right now too in the marketplace. But I think the way in which you're thinking about influencers, I would like to better understand because I think it goes to the core of what influencers are supposed to do for a brand as a channel, as a mechanism, not the Kardashians like we might think of as, a, as an influencer in today's popular culture. Maybe you could just speak to like, how do you think about influencers and how can they be a key element in a marketing plan? Let me tell you a little bit about where this emanated. A few years ago, I was invited to come and interview a bunch of C-level executives in China. And so I, I went to China with a purpose of understanding one topic. And about a third of the way through my interviews, I kept seeing a pattern. And the way that they were thinking about marketing was very different than the way that Western-trained, Western-educated people were thinking about it. And so I shifted what I wanted to study and started diving more into what I found to be really, really interesting. One of the, the tactical examples of the difference in their thought, and by the way, I wrote an article that was on the cover of HBR. It's what, I think something like what Western marketers need to learn from the East. Forgive me, I don't remember the title precisely because HBR tends to rewrite what I, <laughs> what I write. So, but something like what well, Western marketers can learn from the East. And one of the ahas was that they think about channels differently. They think about creating awareness differently than we do. And I think it's because of the way in which their market has evolved, et cetera. And let me give you an example, and then I'll come back to the influencer piece. But I want to give you an example of a story of how this kind of, how I showed students in the class how this works. So I was came back to the U.S. after doing the research, and we had Asia Week, and I was asked to present some of the HBR stuff at Asia Week for the students. So in the classroom, we have people from all sorts of nationalities in there, and I said, okay, guys, here's your job, and I don't remember. It's Coke, pretends Coke, and I want you to come up with a marketing plan, but you cannot use TV. You cannot use digital ads. You cannot use print ads. You cannot use billboards. What are you going to do? And there was about a one second break and my Asian students immediately, their hands shot up. And I waited and I waited and I waited. And the Western marketers were looking around like, well, what do you mean? What can we do? And it was, I, I literally had not planned for that to happen. I was just going to start talking about this influence, but they made the point for me that the Asian marketers immediately think about how can we get people talking? It's just, I like the term that you use. You call it weaponized word of mouth. And, and that's what it is. It's that they think about 
that the fastest way sometimes to drive engagement is through social, is not through social media, but through an influencer strategy. But they think about influencers so differently. They prioritize it as a channel. They may actually think first about influencers. And, and this is different because if what you're doing is you've got the most junior marketer and one person thinking about influencers off in the corner, that's very different than creating a strategy around influencers. And I recall talking to one woman who had actually worked in the U.S. She had gone to school in the U.S. and she was now a CMO over in China. And I said, can you give me an example of how you would think about this? And it's, it's influencer slash kind of social media. It's all content-based marketing not ad-based marketing, it's kind of a, she said, let me give you an example. In the U.S., I would sit down, I would call on Walmart, and we'd be thinking about what ads can we run on Walmart's TV or what promotions will we do a year in advance? She said, if I were in China, what I would do is say, what's coming up next month? Oh, we have Halloween. Who's maybe a very hot Halloween property? Is there some celebrity that's known for Halloween? And, And what everybody would love to know more about at Walmart is behind the scenes content. Nobody knows how Walmart works. One of the world's biggest companies. Hey folks, I'm Mark Marin from the WTF podcast. And this episode is brought to you by Kleenex ultra soft tissues, your ally to help tackle your allergy symptoms this season. I love the change of seasons, but nobody loves pollen and all those other things floating in the air that make you sneeze during this nice weather. Kleenex Ultra Soft Tissues are hypoallergenic and allergist approved. So fight back against watery eyes and runny noses without worrying about irritating your skin. For this allergy season, grab Kleenex and face allergies head on. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now, and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. MintMobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45, equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Do you have no idea how it works? What if you took videos? We, we went in, and by the way, maybe it's a meeting with my product, pretend like I'm Pepsi. And so we're showing a meeting, what happens behind the scenes at Walmart. And so she said, now we're driving engagement of Walmart. We're driving engagement of Pepsi. I'm not really running an ad. But she said, the key is, is how you think about, is, is there a celebrity involved? Maybe it's a, somebody who's a subject matter expert. Maybe it's not. Maybe it's you're just doing clips about if we're promoting Walmart, Walmart behind the scenes and or they're going now I'm going to bring in the influencers. They're finding young people who are influencers of their target and they partner with those influencers and bring them behind the scenes. So it's how do you think about creating content that's interesting to the target? One of the things that I thought was really fascinating, Tencent did a promotion where it was called actually a campaign called, it wasn't a promotion, it was a campaign called Next Idea. And what they did is they partnered with Carrie Wang, who was this 18-year-old pop singer, and they also partnered with Stephen Hawking. Now, what do those two people have in common? Nothing, okay? Except that Carrie was very interested in, in physics. And so what they did is Carrie, what they're trying to do is is to create the Next Idea program was designed to have young people apply or to submit ideas for new innovations. So it was a mechanism to drive innovation in China. And what they did is they had Carrie Wang, this pop singer, think of him as Justin Bieber, who would ask questions and then Stephen Hawking would reply via social media. Not not TV ads, but they they generated tremendous, tremendous number of comments and likes. Let me see what what were some of, what was some of the data? I think they had over 2 million shares, over 30 million views within just a couple of days. But think about that mashup between Justin Bieber and Stephen Hawking. And now this is a, a you know this is a program that Stephen Hawking wanted to promote. It's a promotion of innovation. So I I don't even know how much it would cost if anything. 
And then, you know, you've got these two individuals that, that generate all sorts of interests. And oh, by the way, they're educating people. Where are we seeing that type of creativity in the in the West? It's fascinating to watch when it's done well, like you just described from Tencent or Tennyson. I can never remember how to say their name <laughs> because of this mashup and the fact that they're getting reach and exposure of certain audiences. They're getting intrigue because of the contrast between the two people that are engaging. It becomes at the end of the day, highly educational entertainment. <laughs> like about what you're trying to message or deliver to the marketplace as a marketer, which is pretty, pretty insightful. And it, I think a lot of times in the West, we think about buying channels, right? Like, oh, I need to work with influencers. So I'm going to go buy my way in. I'm going to get somebody to tweet about me for $50,000. And uh, you're essentially buying impressions, it's just in a different medium. But what you just described, which I think is what's pretty interesting and in, in how you essentially are redefining this notion of influencers or, or like you said, I, I, like, I do like to call it weaponized word of mouth, is you're capitalizing on their entertainment value. Yes, their reach and their impressions that you're going to get, but it has to be integrated into what they do and who they are and, and what's the story of, that you're trying to get out you know, and how does it connect which I think is pretty powerful. So that's very cool. I appreciate you talking about influencers. It gets a lot of press, but I, I don't think it's in the right ways necessarily these days. You know, your point is there is this other side, which is I hire Kim Kardashian and have her put her purse on, on her arm and show off the purse and take a, take a, a shot and post it on social media. That's what I call the, the not creative kind of version of this. That's been done forever. Product placement. Here's an example. If you think about Twitter, Twitter actually is a social media platform. Are they, how are they engaging their influencers on their own product? Are they engaging them? Are they engaging the influencers of influencers? And, you know, I mean, we just don't tend to think this way in the U.S. and some of the, the most powerful, for example, influencers in the marketing space, I've talked with them and they said the way in which India or China engages with them is completely different. It is really much more of a strategic partnership versus can I buy you to do something? And it's, it's really trying to build longer term relationship, trying to build win wins. It's it's much more strategic in a weird way than the way in which we approach this. And and I'm, you know, I'm generalizing here. There are obviously good examples in the U.S., but I do think that because of the way that, first of all, speed matters so much in China, that when you get a home run like this, this is much faster and cheaper than TV. Oh, yeah. If something goes well, like like the one you just described with Stephen Hawking and Carrie Wang, they're going to want to do it again, <laughs> right? Like, like, can we do part two? What's part two look like? And you've got, not, you've got them at that point too. Like whether you had to pay them to engage with you the first go around or not, they're going to be more incentivized to, to get engaged with your brand and stay engaged with your brand as an ambassador going forward too. I know we... We, thank you for spending so much time with us. I have a few additional questions I ask everyone that comes on the show, and I'd love to ask you too. The first one being one of my more favorite questions to ask, which is, has there been an experience of your past that defines or makes up who you are today? I would say rather than an experience, like I, I would say that the pastor handing me that book, which kind of frankly provided a certain direction for my life. I would say it's it's the people. You know, I could go back to undergrad. There was a professor, my econ professor, Jeff Isaac, who had a tremendous impact on my life. I could go to graduate school, Chris Puto, who had a tremendous impact. And then the bosses I had in my formative years, Rick Thompson, Deb Henretta, you know, they're all it's all people that really had this tremendous impact. And then obviously my parents. You know, I was fortunate. There's all sorts of research on this, but I was fortunate to have come from really, really good parents who, you know, prioritized, frankly, education. They didn't have a lot when I was little, but education was everything to them. And they made sure that we had, my sister and I, even though we didn't have a lot of money, that we had experiences and that we were very focused 
I mean, my dad in fifth grade, you are going to play golf because what he was really saying is you're not talented enough to actually be a great athlete and anything <laughs> that requires skill. Golf, you know, he would always say to me, golf just requires smarts and practice. So you don't have to have any, if you have no inherent skill, it's the sport for you. Um, he said, you're going to play golf. You're going to be a great golfer. You're going to get straight A's and you're going to pay your way through college and graduate school because I, we can't afford it. And so, you know, in fifth grade, he said, you're going to graduate school. You're going to get an MBA. And that was, you know, we're talking about 70s, 1970s. And but he was very clear. He, and by the way, one of the things he'd say is don't ever depend on the government. They'll never be there for you. Don't depend on a man. Make sure you can only depend on yourself. <laughs> <laughs> so he had this very strong individual responsibility bone <laughs> that really directed probably my whole life. I still remember that fifth grade conversation as we were we were on a street by a carpet store, I'll never forget it, in Springfield, Illinois. And I said, Dad, what am I going to do with my life? And he's like, oh, you're going to play golf. You're going to be a very good golfer. You're going to get straight A's. You're going to go to college. He did say you're going to be an accountant. (laughs) 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 That that didn't work out. You're going to go to college. You're going to, you know, work. And then you're going to get your MBA. You're going to be very successful. Yeah, so I, I was like, okay, that's what I'm going to go do. <laughs> <laughs> oh, boy. Well, what advice would you give your younger self if you're starting this journey all over? This is advice I give my younger self, and my younger self would still ignore it. <laughs> <laughs> it would be, it really would be to enjoy the journey because I am a, a really big planner. I'm always looking to, like, what am I? Have I saved for retirement? Have I saved? You know, I'm 27 thinking about, reti- you know, 40 and 50 and 60. And, you know, as I'm now in the second half of my life, I, I wish that I wasn't that way. But I do think it's a DNA issue. And I'm not, I'm, not, I'm not sure that young Kim would actually listen to old Kim, even though I would have appreciated it if I could have found a way to enjoy the journey a little bit more and, and be a little bit more in the present. Versus always planning for the future. Sounds a little like you got dad in there. Like you, you, yeah. got, you got everything <laughs> planned out already for, for, for little Kim. But <laughs> <laughs> well, when I go home, you know what dad and I talk about? All of his retired, I mean, he's, he's retired in his 80s, but, but it's, it's all financial planning for the future. <laughs> and then we go over my financial planning. He's a, he's a finance guy. So, <laughs> yes, yes, I come by it honestly. What uh is there a topic you think marketers should be learning more about today or you're trying to learn more about yourself? Of course, positioning. <laughs> <laughs> yes, of course. I, I hear there's a great book called Positioning for Advantage. <laughs> um awesome, awesome. Um are there uh are there any brands or companies or causes you think other people should take notice of that you're you're following? You know, there's a couple models I find interesting. I'm I'm following the DTC model because so many of the DTC brands, you know, the the whole the whole story is oh you don't need retailers, you don't need bricks and mortar, you don't need you know. And what happens is the is the DTC brands are then trying to get into retail space. So that's one trend that I'm fascinated by. Another are subscription based models, like for example, Quip. Another are the premiumization. I really think I, I'm a, a big fan of Dyson. I'm, I'm a fan of anything that can take what people think is somewhat of a commodity, a $30 hair blower and sell it for $400. I mean, they're, they're innovating stodgy. They're saying, wait a second, maybe consumers will pay more for a better product. I mean, I'm fascinated when I turn on XM radio and there's, and I can't remember the brand name, but there's somebody who at length, there's this ad that constantly crops up about men's underwear. Now, I didn't know that men's underwear needed innovation, but they're innovating men's underwear because clearly it's not working. So, so I, for me, I'm fascinated. You know, there's this whole group that keeps going off as we talked earlier about helping society and changing society. And then there's, examples of companies that are saying, wait a second, can we actually create a hundred dollar pen? Can we create a hundred dollar shampoo? 
you know, where are there opportunities for us to really bring new ways of value on the high end? Because there's been so much focus on just cutting costs. And so I'm fascinated by, by companies that are really changing, changing that. I also think companies that think about consumer experience in a different way. An example is I talked to the CEO of Oats Overnight, and I love this. This is what they now imagine this. They have, again, it's a subscription-based kind of oats product. The guy who started it is a big health nut. And so you put the oats in overnight with the milk, and then you can eat them in the morning. But here's what I love. If you're a VIP, they send you out products while they're being tested. So you then are, now, now it's not just, I mean, how many food companies do you testing? But they're actually creating new cool value for the consumer because the consumer's now part of the decision-making group as to whether or not they launch these products. And it's free, by the way. They send it out. It's free. Then you're not paying for it. And, you know, and, and it comes out in this little pouch that looks like it's from the test kitchen. And it's just, it's a, it's a super win-win. How can we get really good feedback from our, our most important customers but, oh, by the way, how can we create more value for them? And I, so there's, that's just, it's a small thing. But I think today, you know, companies that are really finding ways to create better customer experiences, premiumization, improved products. I, I do, there's just so much to be watching right now. But these are a couple of the trends that I'm, I'm paying attention to. Last question for you is, what do you feel is the largest opportunity or threat for marketers today? All right, so I, I hate to end on a Debbie Downer. <laughs> it's okay. <laughs> but I'm going to do a Debbie Downer. I, I actually think it's two sides of the same coin or similar coins. I, on the one hand, we've never had greater opportunity to understand consumers. We've got new sources of data. We've got new methods and easy methods to interpret and analyze the data. And so we've never had a moment in time where we can better understand consumers. And yet the greatest threat to, to all of this is I think marketers. And now I say this with a heavy heart because, you know, my passion is to help. My passion is to actually help CMOs, senior marketers, aspiring marketers. That's really my passion. And I want to be kind of the champion and advocate for marketers. But I'm hearing more and more, especially from senior marketers, that young marketers are advocating for themselves, they are activists for themselves, and they are using this to, they're, they're trying to change the brand and or consumers as opposed to serving the brand and serving consumers. And, you know, so these are the questions that I'm now asking students. If you don't like people in the other political party, how can you possibly serve a brand that caters to them. Can you? If you, one of the things is if you are not able to perspective take and understand with empathy people with whom you do not personally agree in this very divided country, how can you actually serve them? You know, and what's happening is when we're, when we're telling young people to go forth and be activists, they're coming in and Google employees convince Google leadership to drop a $10 billion defense you know, bid for the Department of Defense because the employees don't think it's right. I had uh, somebody tell me that a senior marketer at a Fortune 100 company said, I don't care if consumers are mad because I can go to bed at night knowing that I did the right thing. And, you know, the question I have is, who decides who's right? You just said that your consumers don't agree with you. Why are you, why is your version of right the right one for that brand and for those consumers and for the company's employees. You know, the, the issue with Georgia's voting reform law, what nobody knows about, I've talked with employees, is that there's a huge brouhaha with the um, bottlers. So what people forget is that when you take a position or when you do something that divides your consumers, you're also dividing your employees you're dividing your shareholders, you're dividing your suppliers. When you engage in divisive issues, when you try to push your point of view onto a brand, rather than serving that brand's values, serving all of its consumers, that puts the, that puts the business at risk. And I will say I've had a number 
from three very large companies, executives from three large companies saying that this is a problem, that individuals want to take a position on an issue. And it's oftentimes a controversial issue. It could be whatever it is, but it's, it's oftentimes something that's very controversial that has nothing to do with the product. And, and then it, it, it takes them down this rabbit hole that can potentially damage the brand and the business. This is one of the big things that I keep thinking about as an academic is how do, the marketers are the only people that are the champion for the consumer. Nobody else is. We are the ones who are supposed to advocate for the consumer. And a question I would ask in an interview of any marketer is make me believe that you actually can advocate for people that you may not necessarily agree with. Or if the brand's values are X, you know, can you stay true to those brand's values? Or are you going to try to shift those brand's values in alignment with yourself? Part of this, what I try to do in class is to say, when you enter this room, you know, in leadership and organizations, we'll talk about how you feel as an employee. In this class, you're a scientist. Your job is to study the marketplace and to advocate for your consumers. And this is a very hard thing when we personally have points of view on all of these issues. For me, it wasn't hard growing up because it was expected that you serve the company, you know, serve the company, serve the brand. But I think this is becoming, these lines are becoming blurred. And, and my worry is, is if you have marketers that are not bringing the right outside perspective in and they are sitting around a circle with largely a lack of vocal ideological diversity in alignment then there's a potential for that to be a significant blind spot and without naming brands i will say that there was i know of an individual who reported to the ceo and he was consistently being brought in because the ceo did not trust the cmo of the company to share all of the perspectives. So he would actually bring this other individual in to provide an opposing view because the, the leadership of marketing was of one ideology and they always advocated that ideology. Now, if, if I, what I would advise the CEOs, I'd say that's a problem. I mean, that's a, that's a, that's a coachable moment to say, how do we deal with this? Because I'm now having to go around you to bring in a different perspective because you're not doing that. To your point. I mean, it's, the brand is the brand and it serves a whole host of consumers, maybe one of which is you, but I've worked with many companies where the marketers in charge, you know, I probably buy the product because they're the brand leader, <laughs> but they're not the core consumer. You know, they're not who the brand is actually trying to serve every day and every, you know, every month of every year. And the smart marketers, I think, realize that and they check themselves at the door, right? To make sure that I'm not in of one making a decision on my consumer's behalf, but that I'm actually listening and using research and insights appropriately. But it does seem in this like hyper politicized world that marketers are losing sight of that. And unfortunately, to your earlier point about younger marketers is they don't have great examples to follow right now. And I, I worry, to your point, that they may be getting lost in the shuffle on what's what's really important for the brand, not necessarily for their own personal convictions. Yeah, well, this is, you know, this is why I see this as one of the greatest opportunities is that we have unprecedented methods and ways to understand consumers. The risk, though, is that we're not using it. But that, I, you know, part of this falls on educators. You know, we've got to do a better job. And this is why I, I'm, I'm very much thinking about this topic right now because it's, it's very present on higher ed campuses. For example, that student I told you about, the 18-year-old, the you know, I'm thinking about how do you help students understand their role as marketers is to advocate for their consumers and the brand. You're, you're a growth engineer. So when you advocate for something that 30 or 40 percent of the country agrees with and 60 percent disagree with, you've got a math problem. That's not a growth strategy. And so the more that we can look, I think the big opportunity is to look for unifying concepts and principles. You know, look, look for things that bring people together. 
I think we're just in desperate need of that right now. And so versus finding ways to divide and alienate folks. I've got an ad I need to send you because I, I did this class. It's only one time I've done it, but I think it's a really great comparison. If you take the Gillette ad that you mentioned earlier in the conversation, and then there's an old Tangare ad that um, I interviewed the brand marketer that was over the campaign. It was an FE award-winning campaign. And you take their like brand ad, which is long. It's like a minute long, but I think the Gillette ad was long too, or in long form. But if you take those and you compare the two, you can see, like, I was in a room full of journalism students at UNC, and I think almost unanimously, this was only a few years ago, unanimously, they all said that the Tangray ad could have been a better execution of Gillette's concept, but it takes the unifying force, the positive side of what, what masculinity can look like in a great way. Um, and highlights it through the journey of this bartender through throughout his day. <laughs> so I'll send you the ad just because I think it's a, a great illustration and comparison and contrast. And we probably need to do more of that in the classroom. Yeah, no, I'd love to see it. That'd be great. Kim, thank you so much for coming on. And thanks for spending a little extra time with us. Um, it's always, always fascinating to have you on and learn, learn from you. Thank you so much. Hi, it's Alan again. Marketing Today was created and produced by me with support from my team and podcast editors, sound engineers, and writers at Share Your Genius. Find them at shareyourgenius.com. If you're new to Marketing Today, please feel free to write us a review on iTunes or your favorite listening platform. Don't forget to subscribe on marketingtodaypodcast.com and tell your friends and colleagues about the show. I love to hear from listeners. You can contact me on marketingtodaypodcast.com. There you will also find complete show notes, links to what was discussed in the episode today, and you can search our archives. I'm Alan Hart, and this is Marketing Today. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market.